0: Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio.
1: There's all kinds of indices that marketers and organizations use to gauge their relevance with customers, and culture is the ultimate litmus test. And we often talk about culture as being in the empathy business, because part of the, the challenge, I think, for, for many brands is that culture is this broad ecosystem.
0: Hi, I'm Michael Casson. Welcome to Good Company, where I'll explore how marketing, media, entertainment, and tech are intersecting, transforming our lives, and the way we do business at a breakneck speed. I'll be joined by some of the greatest business minds and strongest leaders who will share how they've built companies from the ground up or transform them from the inside out. My bet is you'll pick up a lesson or two along the way. It's all good. I'm excited to welcome two leaders who are at the forefront of culture to Good Company, Linda Ong and her co founder and partner, Sarah Unger, the co founders of Cultique, a cultural insights and strategy venture. I'm so keen on this conversation because just the idea of discussing culture, but really understanding the tool that culture really is, not just the thing that it is, but the thing that it does, is getting underneath what Cultique is all about. And what I'd really love to start with is. Just kind of give our audience, if you wouldn't mind, some backgrounds on yourselves and, you know, as well, kind of how you charted the path to get here. What was the moment and what was the, you know, person or people that kind of inspired you to focus on culture?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. You know, with Cultique and really the the work that I've been doing all my life is really about weaponizing my personal issues for professional gain. Because when you grow up Chinese in Texas as a young kid, as I did in the 70s before there were Asians, and the kids don't understand who you are and and make assumptions based on my skin color or my features, you know, it really has been a lifelong journey of understanding uh, and excavating and helping other people deal with issues surrounding their identity, whether it's a brand, right, or a talent. Uh, worked with a lot of talent, but also my personal background happens to be very multi-layered and multifaceted in terms of culture. And as a child, I had to learn how to navigate and understand, you know, that there were different cultures in the world and subcultures and that you could be an outsider, you could be an insider. So I've really been studying that all my life. And I'm just applying that to all of our clients.
0: It's such a, such a, a, salient point because you had the understanding of living in your own skin.
1: And you I think in were terms more of
0: sensitive it. to it.
1: Yeah. And I think in terms of like brand strategy in particular, but also how that fits into whatever culture you're trying to appeal to. You know, what I learned at an early age is if you don't articulate your own identity and personality, other people will assign that to you. And I really did not like that.
0: My grandmother gave me advice when I was young because of her orientation of coming from Europe and, you know, having to flee Europe. Yeah. as a jewish woman a young teenager and she said when you're jewish you have to stay ahead to keep up
1: yeah and it's, and that's okay.
0: interesting just you know juxtaposing those two things cuz you have something to prove in a different way perhaps and right. and if you're different than others that doesn't mean it's good or bad it's just different
1: that's right and it's, it's interesting, interesting that you mentioned that because as you well know and listeners of your pod also know that the number one thing in, you know, a marketplace is to be different. And yet, as children and in society, we were told blend that, in. that was a bad thing, right? right? And so part of my life's work has really been, you know, this is a coping mechanism for me, right, personally, but it's a recipe for success for a business.
0: Absolutely. And Sarah, you know, give our listeners a little bit of your journey yeah uh, sure. and 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 you know your motivation for bringing cult to to the world
2: so i am a neophile i love learning new things and this like deep well of curiosity from from where it comes, I do not know, but it's always been there. I remember when I was a kid, I actually got kicked out of class for asking too many questions.
0: Um, what well, did I? Except it was because I didn't raise my hand when I asked. The
2: oh, question. okay. I so
0: just, I just blurted it out. So we both we both had the same experience, but for different reasons.
2: Yeah, I uh, and and I think I also remember a different teacher telling my parents that. I was a real bulldog when it came to finding the answer. I wouldn't would relentlessly keep going until I got to the got to the deep enough answer that I wanted and so I think in in the same vein as learning new things, finding hidden connections is really interesting to myself, Linda, our team of analysts as well. And I like taking all of this knowledge that I learn and then inspiring others with it, with our clients, with people in my personal life as well. Um, And I think I always wanted to be in a scenario where I could take Interest in so many disparate different parts of life and weave them in together into into one one existence, one profession. And being a cultural analyst and strategist lets you do that in a very unique way. I think also with Cultique, we. We really embrace the mantra of be water, which reflects the flowing and evolving nature of culture. So I think being in a scenario that lets you evolve as a person, as a professional, as a leader is really, really healthy. And Linda and I wanted to bring that to to life and how how we ran our business and how we approached it culturally.
0: So Sarah, when you say leader, Cultique has a view of what you characterize as a culture first brand. I'd love to understand and get underneath that as to how you look at that. And I know culture and purpose are different, but when you talk about a culture first brand, does it cross over?
2: I'll start with the culture and then we'll lead into how the purpose, uh, how how the purpose derives from that. I think when we look at what a culture first brand looks like, we think of culture as an ecosystem, right? It has, it ebbs, it flows, it evolves, as I mentioned previously. And when we think of a culture-first brand, we think of a brand that's a healthy, contributing part of the broader cultural ecosystem. You can really think of it as brand health in a way. And when we talk about health, it means being proactive, not reactive culturally, coming from a position of offense, not defense, which is how we like to work with our clients, really having an understanding of what your essence is and getting ahead of how that is communicated and translated to the world. Linda, maybe you can talk a little about the cultural litmus test that we do yeah.
1: well i think basically you know as sarah mentioned there's brand health trackers there's brand trust metrics there's all kinds of indices you know that that marketers and and organizations use to gauge their relevance with customers and culture is the ultimate litmus test and we often talk about culture as being in the empathy business because you know part of the the challenge I think for for many brands is that culture is this broad ecosystem. part of what we do is help geolocate what is what is their place currently what is their aspirational place they could be in culture but also importantly, who are the audiences that really um, they're trying to cultivate right and and remember that the word cult, you know, which has a negative connotation is the first part of the word culture. So cults are, you know, without the, uh, you know, the negative associations are really about fandoms in, in some way or groups of people or subcultures. So if you as a brand understand who is your audience, what are they feeling? What does the world look like on their terms? That is really about empathy. And that's really what we try to help our clients understand or or really, you know, to the point of the earlier conversation, How can we help every business be an insider when they are actually outsiders to those subcultures or audiences? So for example, a lot of companies dealing with Gen Z and not understanding how do you communicate with Gen Z? And everyone says, you have to meet Gen Z where they live. Well, that's really about empathy. You have to understand what the world looks like from Gen Z's point of view. You have to understand what the world looks like when America has only been in decline since they were born that's a very different experience than generations before and you can't apply the same principles of when i was a teenager to a gen x youth so i think part of being culture first is not necessarily looking at the broader culture only but really zeroing in and that's really what we do is curate the subcultures and conversations which essentially you know can be fandoms can be subcultures can be you know in the case of some of the projects we worked on it can be soccer fans it can be you know, women who like a certain TV show. It could be, you know, sci-fi fans. It could be any kind of group that has a shared group of a uh, shared set of values and affinities. And you know, this is sort of the work that gets us the most excited because it is really much more helpful than demographics when you're looking at audiences. I think consumers today are really
2: are really clear that you need to have a a true understanding of how to meet them halfway. And we don't even think of them as consumers, just people. We try to kind of take the commercial out of it. But I think our our analyst team really represents the broader cultural perspective when companies innately, even if they're so culturally smart, kind of operate with blinders on because you have internal demands. And so I think that cultural litmus test that Linda referred to in some ways is a bullshit detector. It's a detector that can sort of look at where opportunities that you may not realize are totally culturally misstepping before it happens, <laughs> before you spend all this money to launch a campaign that doesn't actually land with consumers. I think we're those eyes and ears where it's necessary and when we think in general about purpose and the purpose bullshit detector, I think what we're seeing is consumers have an expectation that if a company declares a purpose, it needs to really be the pillar of their entire business's existence, both internally and externally.
0: And I, and I want to add something. You, you, you said something that that sparked this for me. I've always drawn a distinction when people talk about marketing in the context of B2B or B2C. We all know B2C, you know, direct to consumer, B two B, you know, direct to business. I always caution people to not forget businesses are people too. Mm. Corporations have a personality. Corporations. So when you say B two B, B two C, you're saying well, one is kind of an inanimate object, and one is a person. I I I, I always push back on that and say corporations are people too.
2: Yeah, they they, yeah.
0: they have a personality. So you can't look at it. You know, there, there's no when you're marketing B two B you're still marketing to someone you're yep. marketing to a procurement person you're marketing to a, 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 a you know a buyer you're marketing to somebody that is in the face of a corporation right so I, it's interesting when you when you say that cuz corporations have personalities as well
2: totally and just building that analogy further if a corporation operates like a human if they throw on a new pair of clothes for a day consumers know they haven't changed entirely. And so this is a new
0: sweater, by the way. Very
2: nice. Very very
0: nice sweater. First time, uh, the the label may still, the tag may still be in it. I don't know.
2: (laughs) I think. I think when we look at purpose, we're trying to help businesses. Caltique is trying to help businesses find their very innate white space where they naturally can enter the conversation versus trying to squeeze a square peg into a round hole, which is jarring to consumers and inauthentic at best. So. Absolutely.
0: absolutely, Guys, I, I want to get current again, and I want to look back over the last kind of two years. In the last two years, I think it's fair to say we've lived 20 um, or more. Maybe we've lived a generation. I'm certain we have, actually. These last two years are a generation because the experiences that we've all had over these last two years are bonds that will never be broken because it's a shared experience, right? Um, how, how do you help brands decipher you know, if and when they should add the voice to the conversation? We see what happened with the Walt Disney Company in Florida. And, and and I'm certain we could make, you know, 10 podcasts about that from not only the perspective of the Walt Disney Company in the state of Florida, but just the idea of corporations having those those voices, number one. And number two, you know, what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic was really uh, manifested itself in the marketing messages that were delivered. And I talked about this a lot in, in 2020, but it came up the other day. We all saw what happened, and the, the best example was quick service restaurants. During the p- early days of the pandemic, instead of seeing you know McDonald's showing you a picture of a juicy hamburger and french fries, they showed you pictures of the frontline workers. You know, instead of Walmart saying, you know, lowest prices, whatever, they showed you the workers. It, and, and we went through the pandemic and we landed in the middle of George Floyd. We then rolled into Delta. And then we rolled into the next issue, and now we're in a situation where we have a war going on, which I can't imagine in 2022. We're talking about a ground war in Europe, and yet we do, number one. Number two, the horror of, and I wrote an op-ed the other day, which I'm not ashamed to promote here, on what I will not refer to as school shootings. I refer to as school murders. And, and, and I think words matter and we're all in the business of shaping narratives. And I wrote an op-ed, as I said the other day, that said, don't call this a shooting, call it what it is. It's a murder. And words matter. A shooting is when you make a movie or you take a film or you go to a, a, an amusement park and you go to a shooting gallery. Hmm. This wasn't a shooting. This is a murder, a massacre. So when we've got all those events around us, marketers need to adjust or do they? I mean, do you still go out with low price, or now are we going to have see you know retailers talking about the community? I, I it's it's a question I don't know the answer to.
1: Yeah, well, it's a we could do a whole podcast on that, right? I think first of all, thank you for your words and your thoughts and putting your voice out there. It's important for those kinds of narratives to air, see sunlight. And you're right. I mean, the last 24 months have. We've witnessed more change over the last 24 months than we've experienced in the last 24 years or even the last 100 years. The rate of change is, has just completely accelerated. And we like to look at this past period as really a perfect storm. And it's interesting, a lot of people use that analogy, but we, I wanted to really understand from a meteorological standpoint, what, is, what really a perfect storm is. And it is a confluence of different factors that we know. So it could be racial strife, income inequality, pandemic, world war, you know, climate change, all these things that are going on at the same time, and this upheaval in society. But really, the, the characteristic, uh, characteristic of a perfect storm that we're feeling right now is that when all those different unrelated factors converge, they have the effect of intensifying, amplifying, and exacerbating each other. So it's almost like throwing those all those factors into a giant queasy nart, but, you know, Mix, mixing up the whole world at the same time. So they're not isolated anymore. And so if you look at the history of advertising, which we do from a cultural perspective, advertisers and marketers have traditionally taught society how to behave, taught people they needed whiter clothes or needed to smell fresher or needed to have whiter teeth, all these things that were, you know, for good or for bad, uh, ideas that were inserted into society, even. You know, socially progressive ideas, IKEA and Volkswagen being the first to feature same sex couples in their advertising, or Cheerios showing multiracial families. These are advances that advertising has typically ahead of other media put forward. So it's hypocritical for advertisers to say when things are bad that we can't weigh in, right? So what we advise our clients is I, I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a binary i don't think it's a an across the board you know do you weigh in do you not but really understanding what we say is what's the cultural dna of your organization and your brand and typically again we look back at the history of a company and we say When was this company founded? For what purpose at that time? And why did it resonate in culture when it took off? May not have taken off in the first year, might have taken off in the 10th year, but when it took off, what was happening in the world? It could have been a world war, it could have been a change in society from agriculture to industrial, many, many different factors. But when you understand what's in the cultural DNA, and we can do this, we do this for brands, we do this for content. You know, pieces of content, legacy content in its 20th season, what's in the DNA that people really liked. You know, I just watched Top Gun, uh, Maverick. But the first thing we did was go back to the original and say, well, what's in the DNA of the original and what do we need to promise audiences in the new? um, And I I think it totally delivers on that. It
0: totally delivered. I saw the movie. It totally delivered. You
1: would know right away if it was inauthentic to the original. So part of the examination about when do you weigh in? What is your purpose? All that needs to go back. To Sarah's point, if you show up with different clothes, all of a sudden it feels inauthentic. So what is, even if people weren't around when that company was founded, that DNA is there. I worked a long time ago with Reuters, right? Reuters became a successful company in the 1800s because of carrier pigeons. That's how Reuters started. And if you understand that that's in their DNA, that helps you carve a path to, how does that translate to today? What was the need state in society? So I think that the Unilever, we have been following the Unilever study. I loved, you know, it was very provocative question. Does mayonnaise need a purpose? But then I would go back to, you know, what was the need state? What was the cultural desire that made Hellman's popular in the first place?
0: Well, Linda, it's interesting. If you go back using Unilever and continuing it, Lord Lieber, it was originally around hygiene. And cleanliness, and people right. didn't brush their teeth, and right. and they didn't wash their clothing, and right. and it was hygiene that was really right. behind what Lord Lever started when he started Unilever. So right. it's an interesting if you look back at the DNA of the company, right. it, and 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 they were one of the first to build that company town, you know, a place for the workers to live, right. and you so know that
1: so- to me is the blueprint, right? So what what should their purpose and their contribution to society be today? Should be the 2022 version of those initial impulses, which were again humanistic, you know, and empathetic at their start. No, no, it's
0: it's it's a really brilliant point. As we look back, let's look forward.
1: Mm-hmm. So Love we're on that. the
0: verge of is we're on the verge of arguably the potential of maybe another tectonic shift. In and living in Los Angeles, I don't like to say tectonic. No, I
1: don't say tectonic. Yeah,
0: I want. I don't want to say tectonic. You know.
1: Paradigm shift.
0: <laughs> yeah, paradigm shift. Better, better, better. I'm not inviting any friends uh, of, of underground rumblings. The 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 question I have is: as you're looking forward into the metaverse and into you know kind of Web three, or as I try to say, I don't know that we're all the way there yet. Maybe Web two point five. But you know, as you look forward, are, are you how are you advising the brands that Cultique is currently working with as to how they need to be thinking of these same issues in this new Uh, paradigm.
1: Well, it is a new paradigm and we're, we are very fixated on looking forward and helping our clients look forward because we do think that is a binary. You're either at this point with the future or clinging to the past. And and we think people who are um, embracing what I call the inevitable are going to win in this new era. I think what we're seeing in terms of the metaverse and and Sarah, I will uh, cue you as well right now with, The current situation, especially when it comes to media and entertainment and tech, um, such an intensification and amplification, again, because of this perfect storm. But in fragmentation of audiences, that is the number one issue that um, our clients are dealing with is they understand that, again, demographics are unhelpful in terms of reaching broad swaths of audience. And we've seen this explosion in fandom and this appetite for really um, small, smaller communities, smaller conversations, but very immersive world building applications for each of those individual um, subcultures or, or fan bases. And so whether that's virtual, in the metaverse or IRL. Are you seeing, a lot of has been written recently about the rise of live action role play. Disney now has a a whole um, immersive world that they built where you can go stay and act out your fantasies with with other characters and cast members. Star um, Wars specifically. Star Wars, yeah. But we're seeing it in in many other, I mean, you see the Bridgerton activations that people are crazy for going, um, you know, to to really immerse themselves in these experiences. So the metaverse is just a a virtual way to do that. What we think is really important is to understand how to segment your audience based on cultural affinity. So we've been performing and conducting a lot of cultural segmentation, similar to the way people used to do them demographically, but really understanding Um, that, you know, people have, dog lovers have more in common, perhaps than, you know, women 18 to 24. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's just, again, getting into the wiring, becoming an insider and understanding what are all the many different ways that people want to experience this shared affinity and shared values Mm -hmm. uh, in the metaverse is going to be a very exciting way to do that.
2: It's definitely something we're studying. We're getting asked about a lot. I mean, if you're in culture, you need to be sort of tracking this this shift for sure. I think what's fascinating is a few things to keep in mind. It's not like a light switch will be flipped on and then all of a sudden we're living in the metaverse. I recorded a podcast a little while back on autonomous vehicles. It's the same kind of thing. Our cars are already smarter. We're already dipping our toe into the metaverse in a lot of the ways that we're operating in our digital lives. So I think it's more of a gradual thing than an all of a sudden thing, even though we're seeing a lot of um, exciting uh, and slightly alarmist press about it. But Sarah, you
0: know, the old, you know the old definition of bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is something that happens very slowly and then very quickly.
2: Exactly, you know, it, exactly. It, it happens That's very so slowly,
0: that it happens really So quickly. good
2: and so terrible. So hopefully that happens to nobody. Uh, But I think also when we look at the metaverse, it's really important to look at where digital engagement is very unique and offers opportunities that really you can't replicate in real life, whether it's scale, more inclusive. I think that's where metaverse can really shine versus trying to replace the magic of the tangible world. It each has its benefits and its place. And I think What's fascinating and some of the studies that I'm most interested in reading about are as technologies become more uh, widespread, they start to become prey to the same biases and systemic issues that happen in broader society. In real life. Yeah. So, so we're already seeing discussion around sexual assault in the metaverse and issues along those lines. Similar frankly to how once crypto became you know professionalized and more adopted in a mainstream way by brands, then you start to see it, you know, become less inclusive and represent less of the ideals and more like broader financial market problems. Really? So I think you can think of it in those terms.
0: So let me let me ask another question as we look back to 24 months that felt like 24 years and as as we look forward but looking back for one moment over the let's say the last year is there any content development you know aside from obviously the streaming and 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 the like are there any content developments that stand out to you you know people are standing back and saying whoa
1: for me personally a big whoa was when squid game blew up You know, we've been watching global content, obviously, for a long time. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because we've been attributing the sort of broadening appetite for global content in, you know, we, we will trace that back 10 or 15 years to actually when people started really watching reality television in the U.S., they got used to reading subtitles, which was really interesting because if you watch a reality show, even today, there's always a segment where somebody's speaking with subtitles because you can't hear them, they're drunk, they're speaking in jargon. But that sort of kind of mainstream and normalized where because there was always this bias that, you know, everything from television in the past 50 years is Americans won't read subtitles, Americans won't do this, Americans won't do that. Well, I think that reality television we saw really paved the way. And then the other thing that happened with streaming is just the algorithms started serving up you know shows that you didn't really know where they came from and the production of shows even like narcos where you had that were american productions but you had characters speaking in spanish the entire time with subtitles these kinds of uh, normalizations of uh, what used to be kind of for, forbidden right, or verboten uh, approaches to content are really being eliminated by, by just the proliferation of streaming. And with Squid Game, it was so interesting because it was the first time that really an Asian piece of content, and a non-Western piece of content, really resonated in many parts of the world. Um, and I think that has huge implications for marketers. Marketers need to understand that audiences are opening up to global ideas, global faces, global languages, and... That is something that has not traditionally, uh, you know. You have some marketers like Adidas who've been very global from for, for a really long time, and they've really been a pioneer even of just bringing in really omnicultural, very diverse, different kinds of people, not just racially, but different economic um, and, you know, scales, as well as um, different levels of recognition, men with women, different sports, mixing them all together. And I think that kind of uh, Nike also, it's interesting with sports because the sports are more global, but Nike also paved the way with bringing in um, different kinds of sounds and talent from all over the world. And I think that global market is really, we're Seeing it really accelerate right now because of the pandemic, because people were more open to different kinds of content. And again, you know, it goes back to give me something different. Give me something that's not formulaic. Give me something I haven't seen before. And so I think for marketers, that's a great opportunity to say, well, what does that look like to be, even if you're US focused, to have a more global viewpoint?
0: Interesting, because you're right. Uh, I've never been uncomfortable with subtitles, but on all the streaming I did over the last twenty-four months, so many of these shows were in languages other than English.
1: I'm sure everybody on this podcast watched "Call My Agent" in French, you know. And by the way, that is now we oui,
0: oui, Mademoiselle.
1: Yeah, and by the way, that show, as you know, it now has a British version, which is in English. It doesn't have a U.S. version yet, but it also, I believe, has South Korean, Turkey, Italian. So you know, a good idea can translate in any language. But no, uh, also- a
0: thousand percent. That's right, 700%. but any
1: language is no longer really a barrier for viewers. And yeah. and you're interested as U.S. viewers, you know, again, we're in an era of decline. We're interested in learning from other cultures because other cultures, for example, K-culture K is incredibly ascendant. K-culture is what American culture did in the 20th century. K-culture is doing now um, because it's music, it's books, it's film, it's everything, right? Uh, fashion. So you know, the, these cues... From a macro level, are really important because they can make a brand feel dated or forward-looking.
0: Yeah, no, no, it's it's so true, and and I, I you know, I'm sad that we have a limited amount of time today, but we're definitely doing a podu in 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 the spirit of of uh, language.
1: Do it in French.
0: Ah, je parle français, un petit peu, mademoiselle.
1: Moi aussi, ah. moi aussi, depuis beaucoup de temps.
0: Okay, mm-hmm. you lost me there. Now I'm done. I I I, I gave you all I had.
1: You a lot of wine. You after a lot of wine.
0: <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um it, let me let me ask you the the question I always love to ask but particularly to the two of you. If you had a crystal ball cuz part of what you do is crystal ball like you're taking data and and listening and 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 looking forward at, you know cuz Culture isn't only what it is now, where it's going. You know, the the, the thing I used to say about a particular demographic that marketers are always searching for, the holy grail of that certain demo, the problem is you can't find them. They have to find you because if you find them, it's too late. So they're already on to the next when you yeah. find them. So you have to. Well,
1: I'm, I mean, that's just, I know this isn't your question, but I, I do because you, you gave me the end. So like a lawyer, I have to go there. Let's just talk about data for a second. The issue with data is the minute you have that information, it's old, right? And it's the same for a focus group. The minute you ask a consumer, do you like this? Do you not like this? You can't act on that because they've already made up their mind. What culture allows us to do, because we'll we'll ingest all the data, but we don't talk to consumers. We analyze all of the inputs that speak to them and drive their decisions. So we're typically able to you know, accurately anticipate shifts in culture one to two years before they come to the mainstream, because we're looking at stuff that's emergent. We're not we're actually not crystal ball gazing, but you know, understand the phrase, but we're actually looking at the new breadcrumbs that are emerging, right? I uh, know Under-
0: the cue, you said it earlier, Linda, or Sarah, yeah. one of you said it, the cues that we get are the things that lead us to, you know, the next, yeah. the next yeah. new thing, right? We see the cues exactly. if it's, we're listening, if we're looking. It's
2: yeah. true when we look at things, you know, if if an analyst was starting out this, in this industry, they might have nerves like, How will I know I'm right. Well, because it's what's happening in culture, we're just seeing it and connecting the dots in a way that might escape some people. So nothing nothing we're doing is coming out of thin air. But, but well, back to your question, I'm, I'm eager to hear an answer.
0: You know, it, again, do you see a tidal wave coming? Do you see another? I mean, we talked about metaverse. We talked about Web 2.5 or 3 <laughs> and, and NFTs. It, it, yeah. it, if, again, if you're prognosticating, and again, I know you're not in the na- business of prognosticating, but you are to some degree.
1: Um, yeah, we like to say we're in the business of anticipating.
0: Better better choice of words. <laughs> um, a- as you're anticipating, is there something particular that you could share that you're anticipating?
2: Sure. I think right now, as Linda mentioned, we study everything, so there's... There's shifts in basically all sectors that we're studying. One that we find particularly worthy and notable, I would say, is the mental health crisis is really prominent right now, especially among younger generations, which, of course, we're always the reason why we love to study younger generations is because they're going to grow up to be the future, right? It's such an important focus for anyone who's looking at emergent developments in culture. Mental health crisis is really really a key, a key problem that I think everyone, every brand should be paying attention to because our perspective of the world really um, dictates how humans engage with it and whether um, you can engage with it on stable terms. The world's growing more chaotic, so that's increasingly difficult. Linda and I actually, in the end of February, put ourselves in a neurofeedback training program because we're very interested in neurofeedback as a mechanism. Um, In addition to traditional psychology, psychiatry, we're also studying the advent of psychedelics as well in their increasing research being done on them, hopefully nascent approval by the FDA. Um, We're very interested in how these tools are really going to help shift the way generations, especially younger generations feel empowered to engage with the world.
1: We actually have been um, we just did an igtv live on our um, our Instagram site that we'll be posting in a bit with um, the neuroscientist at the program and really my you know the the what I'm really eagerly anticipating is the application of neuroscience in the workplace. So we've all been in corporations where teams have done myers-briggs tests and disk assessments and all kinds of, tools that are really self-assessments and very subjective. Um, But if you can imagine the application of neuroscience and neurofeedback to really understand, Sarah and I went together and we understand now how our brains work very differently and why we're good partners. So I think that those kinds of, um, you know, and and neuroscience is really at its infancy now. So that's a really exciting frontier for the workplace. Well,
0: uh, I would just add one of the things that I am the most passionate about, which you guys wouldn't have been aware of. But I'm on the board of something called Project Healthy Minds, which is an organization that is focused on exactly this, on the mental health crisis that we are really experiencing in this in this country, in this world. And, you know, the the stigma that comes with mental health and the unwillingness for people to talk and share and, you know, the, the, the rise of suicide, not only teen suicide, but across the board. But the, the mental health crisis is real and and and. Palpable, and it was exacerbated by these last twenty-four months because the impact that we've seen and what the studies are showing, and you know this better than I, the impact of what we went through over the last twenty-four months as a as a as a race, as a human well, race,
1: and the um, last legacy of that too, right? Because long yeah. COVID is yeah, now,
0: long COVID. By the way, is one physical feels. manifestation. Well, long mental
1: right, impact But-, but To that point, you know, much of the research on long COVID will take place in the brain. Mm -hmm. And so that's why brain science, we really, uh, you know, Sarah and I uh, attended this course because we already were sensing that neuroscience was the new frontier, you know, in the way that, and, and this is important, I think, for marketers, because, you know, we've gone through eras. Now we understand physical health is important, right? Diet, fitness, exercise, all that. We now have gone through this period where emotional and, you know, a lot of these things that have come out uh, that have been exposed by the pandemic, a lot of emotion, emotional health, mental health has been exposed, but neurological health, brain health, you know, to Sarah's point, people are reaching to hallucinogenics and other therapies. Well, what we learned in uh, in our program was that your brain has the capacity to make itself high. And so you, we don't really if we understand and brain science is really in its infancy. So there is a a whole market that is emerging that is is not new it's already emerging in terms of nootropics and you know tech for the brain and but imagine and this was mentioned by our neuroscientists, imagine your fitness tracker that you have that me- measures your steps and your and your um, heart rate can monitor your brain waves. Uh, it's it, great, it's,
2: both it's exciting
0: and exciting. Brain. We're yeah, the excited
1: yeah. because what we learned is that if you respect your brain, if you learn how your brain works and you respect that, um, just like you you learn how your body works in in the gym.
0: You know, it brings me back to one of my favorite folk singers from a different era, Gordon Lightfoot. If you could read my mind,
2: I
1: right. love that song. I love
0: um, that
2: song, and I can't believe favorite. I
0: conjured that one up, but. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sarah and Linda, this has been an extraordinary pleasure for me because we're talking about things that, you know, make our world spin and and, you know, having your perspective and insights is something that is extraordinarily valuable, not only to your partners and clients and companies and people that you advise, but to our listeners uh, on good company. So, you know, with that, I want to thank you for spending this time. And I want to thank you for sharing your true wisdom and experience uh, with our listeners. So Linda and Sarah, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Michael. It's been an extreme pleasure as always.
0: I'm Michael Casson. Thanks for listening to Good Company. Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. A special thanks to Lena Peterson, Chief Brand Officer and Managing Director of MediaLink for her vision on Good Company. And to Jen Seeley, Vice President Marketing Communications of MediaLink for programming amazing talent and content.